1: Entered the House of Mystery, with your hosts,
0: Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our warriors. 102.3 FM, Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside
1: and 105.0 AM Palm
2: Springs. Oh, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren, Mr. Martino.
1: Yes, playing, present.
2: Playing, playing pool. <laughs> playing pool? Aren't you playing pool? Am I? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing something. you got pool sticks and...
1: Oh, you're talking about the, the uh, Kali and the
2: Oh, is that what that, that
1: is? Yes, yes, yeah. Boy, yeah even...
2: no and, uh, oh, Yeah, there's no
1: Q-Stick and 8-Ball or anything like
2: that. No. no, I don't even know what those words are you just said. Yeah. But... <laughs> is that districts <laughs> it's, it's in a... L.A.? I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's martial well, arts.
2: arts. Martial arts. Filipino martial arts. <laughs> wow, so you're, you're becoming... So you're taking over what's his place you're at uh oh geez, you know the guy that went to russia you're taking his place Who uh, you know uh
1: um, <laughs> oh, oh 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 Steven Seagal yeah that's Aikido. that's Aikido.
2: yeah but you're you're still taking his place you're going to be doing I all am? the shows and movies and everything yeah they'll pick you
1: okay that's how yeah. sure
2: yeah cuz you know you're
1: you i know. could do some gtv uh, uh movies yeah so yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to it
2: <laughs> and be a star,
1: you know. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, today is Friday, and we are going into the horror, the horror world, and uh, we have to go all the way to the UK because <laughs> <laughs> there's no horror in the states. We know that. <laughs> it's all, it's all roses. Um, so let's welcome Stephanie Ellis to the show.
3: Hello, and I'm actually in Wales, in the UK, in Wrexham. Although I've yet to see either of the local um, football stars who took over the club from your side of the world, but there we go. And I don't play pool or do Aikido, so I'm quite safe.
2: Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. Um, well, you know, Dave Dave plays alone. <laughs> anyway. Well, Stephanie, you have written a ton of books here. Like, I, I look through and wow. Um, where do you get where do you get the energy to do all this?
3: I don't know. People keep saying I'm prolific and that I've written a lot, but it is actually the culmination of quite a few years of writing. I keep thinking I still think of myself as being very new to the genre and I started getting stories published back in 2013, 2014. I wasn't really doing much before that. Um, that was when I took it seriously. And bizarrely, I think it's this concept of time flying as you get older. So that's what makes me think I'm still new. But a lot of what I've written was done during that time. But it's when it gets published, it all seems to be at the same time. So it looks as though it's all happening at once. But the ideas I just get from what I I see around me. I mean, some of the short stories that I've done, I've based. I've used characters that you, you hear about people in the news that have done something wrong and they never seem to get their comeuppance. And I, I was talk, I was thinking about this on an interview the other week about who I used and why. And I think it was it's a way of getting control back over life a little bit by all those people who seem to step out of line. You think, oh, they've got away with it. You can actually put those characters in your stories and you can get them, you know, they can have their, their bit of punishment and, Good usually overcomes evil, but I will say some of my stories don't always have happy endings whenever anyone's asked me to write uh, a horror story with a bit of hope at the end. I failed dismally on, on those counts.
2: So you're really punishing people you don't like?
3: Uh, a little bit, yes. <laughs> but also, also to have a bit of fun as well. You know, it's, Some of the characters I write, especially in the folk horror, they're, they're bad, but they're likable in a really bizarre sort of way or at least a few of them are and i i do tend to have more fun writing the villains probably because i'm the sort of person that, that doesn't like to break the rules or do anything wrong in life I, i've always been the one who sort of follows everything and doesn't like to get into trouble i mean my my previous job before i stopped to, to focus on the writing was as a librarian and, you know, the kids would come in and they'd talk to me and I'd say I'd write, you oh, know, what you write this? And it'd be, oh, horror. And then be what music do you listen to? Oh, metal, industrial metal, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's totally yeah. the opposite to what people expect. So I do like to subvert expectations a little bit. People make assumptions when you look at somebody, um, but they're not always like that. So I do like to challenge that a little bit to show that you don't have to just a certain way to be regarded as one sort of person you can just be yourself and just surprise people a bit do you do you
2: ever have an issue writing evil people or getting into the minds of someone that would be pretty uh, pretty nasty
3: no because i like i like to see how fu- what they can get away with before somebody tries to stop them but i also I mean, there's some characters in um, Reborn, my latest novel, which is a folk horror sequel to The Five Turns of the Wheel. And there are these three characters, Tommy, Betty and Fiddler. And Fiddler always plays a violin and because they're like a little theatrical mama's troupe based on sort of traditional roles. And Betty is the man who dresses up as a woman for comedic effect. And Tommy is the one who organizes it. But they're the ones who who make people suffer. But I've given them a sense of humour as well. and. <laughs> By doing that, you can sort of chuckle along with them as they, they, they go about their business and bring mayhem to everybody else's life. It, it's just, I'd like to write it with a little bit of a smile on my face. I don't take it too seriously. I want it to be a good story. And people say, what themes do you talk about? And yes, there are themes in there which come through as I write, not because I plan them. But overall, I would just like to be a good storyteller. And the feedback so far has been that I tend to achieve that for those who like my books, because I know not everybody does. Write, reading is subjective. So, but uh, yeah, I make them a little bit human, a little bit likable,
1: have a bit of fun. Well, talking about uh, folk horror, I was wondering how much do you draw off of um, mythology and folk tales and how much of what you do is imagination.
3: Uh, it's it's a split, really. I mean, the, the idea for the three of the Mummer's Troop, it came from The Wicker Man, the original one. I haven't watched the remake. My eldest keeps telling me I should, but I refuse. The first, I think it's 1973 one, that's the classic, that's the one I stick to. They had the uh, parade where you would have the uh, hobby horse, punch, the half man, half woman, and I like. Those particular aspects that I could draw. I wanted to bring those into my stories because they looked quite horrific, even though if you look at old photos of villages and events in during May, during the summer months or the winter months, they'd be dressed up with masks and everything. It's supposed to be fun, but they looked quite frightening. So I brought that into it. And I also saw that a lot of the, the folk horror movies or books, they tended to fix on just one particular aspect of ritual. It's always a bonfire. Someone always gets burned. And I wanted to develop other rituals that would feel folkloric in effect. And so the ones in five turns I made up myself. But in Reborn, I've actually gone into um, earlier mythology more on the Nordic side with the North. Um, there's, there's a ritual at the end which I'm not going to give away, but it is actually based on sort of old Viking um, rituals. So I've been digging a bit more into ancient history a little bit on this one. And I do want to go further. Uh, Some years ago, and it's still ongoing, I did my family history and traced it back through the Normans because there was a Norman name. I traced it back and that took me into the Vikings. So I've got that sort of ancestry. And for me, I, I love reading the stories, but it's a way of getting in touch with those distant roots and just enjoying the stories and bringing some of it back to the modern day. I don't like the idea of things being lost in time. I think old stories, old traditions, even if you're not necessarily going to reenact them now, I hope people don't—not—not um, not, not, you know realistically anyway. Um, I hope that they're brought back and people can enjoy them again, or at least go back to the original. Writings. I have been buying up other books on Celtic mythology, um, digging around to see what I can use in the future. So, yeah, I really do like history and I like to dig around in the past and see what I can bring in to um, sort of modern stories. I've got a, a short story that's coming out later this year. I think it's called Lure and Legend is the, the anthology from like the public, publications. I might have got that wrong. I can't, I can't get the name of the publisher right. But I've used an old Norse story in there where it, it features on this person or this creature that's in Valhalla that's eaten by the warriors every night and then is reborn the next day to be eaten again. But I've sort of transferred that into the human world. So I do like to dig around, as I say, and find myths that I can use and twist a little bit into a more modern setting.
2: Your your newest series, like this book here, like The Reborn, and you said this is the follow-up to... The, uh, the five turns of the yeah. wheel. So um, let's talk about that a little bit. What's the what's kind of the premise of the, of this book?
3: Well, in in the five turns of the wheel, which is, I'm going to say it's partly based on my my childhood in a way because there's there's a pub in there called the five turns, and I, I was brought up for well from the age of eight to seventeen in a pub called the Cider House, in the middle of nowhere. So I've used that element within the story, but there. Alongside this area of the English countryside called the Weld is a parallel world of Umbra, and it's it's sort of just or well, not quite visible, but it's there. And these creatures are sort of human, sort of not, but they they survive by feeding on the blood and the flesh of those who live in the world. But those people are kept in that place, and they can't go beyond its borders without without permission but it was a bargain that was struck so that they would, their villages would thrive and the people, the umbrans would actually survive at the same time. But one of the rituals involved um, the loss of an unborn child, and the main character in that, Megan, who features in both books, she fights against that ritual, um, although she eventually loses, loses her child. But she wants to put a stop because it always seems to be the women who suffer, whether it's the... Whether it's a mother or a young girl or the grandmother, they're they're all drawn into the rituals. And yes, some men get harmed along the way, but it's very much about keeping the women in place. But those who control it, Tommy, Betty, Fiddler, and their father, Huayol, who's the Lord of Umbra, they say that it's in the name of the mother, Mother Nature, Um, but they've become too cruel. So Megan puts a stop to it. That's a bit of a spoiler for five turns. But in doing so, she loses her husband, but his spirit resides in this sword that they use for ritual. I will say that in Reborn, although it's her journey to try and get her husband's spirit freed and maybe reborn. And it's also the story of the the other three that I have put in points throughout the story. So it's not done heavily, but it drops in a little bit of what was in five turns so that you never actually lose the thread. So because Megan, at the end of five turns, was put in charge of Umbra, she stopped a lot of the rituals. And those folk, if they don't have the blood, if they don't have the flesh, then they start to weaken. And so you've got Tommy, Betty and Fiddler. They're all getting weak and they're all getting really annoyed that she is keeping them in their place. And so they leave at the start of Reborn and they go on this journey to find, um, apologise to their mother. And also to discover their father, who is also being reborn. And he is, I always say the name wrong, uh, Sanunos or Sanunos, the horned god. He rises again, so it's a bit like a, a family reunion. But it's a quest in a way. You've got Megan trying to get her husband back. You've got the three who are trying to get their strength back and to get Mother Nature to give them their place back in, in the scheme of things. So they're all going to this one place to see who will come out on top. Will the three be destroyed forever? Will Megan release her husband and who they meet along the way? That's very much the premise of the story. It's more of a quest than a journey with ritual at either end, rather than the five turns, which was based on each turn of the wheel was a specific ritual. But that is also referenced in Reborn, so it shouldn't confuse people too much, I hope.
2: When you write... um... Something like this, where there's a couple of parts to it. Did you have that in mind when you were first writing five the five turns? Was this sort of something that you knew would take a couple of books, or did it come up afterwards?
3: It came up as I was writing because, as I wrote the story, it's very much from Megan's point and from it, it was very much Tommy's story as well. There was also the character of Betty, the one who wears the dress and is supposed to be the comedian. But in the five turns of the wheel, you see that he's very much an animal. He's very much a child of nature. And I wanted to tell his story to work out why he was exactly what he was, because I had a lot of fun with him. But he is brutal. He will kill without even thinking about it. And there's a certain innocence about him as well. He's not one given to a lot of thought. And it is because he is this child of nature. And I wanted to address the idea of the monster because who is to say some sometimes what is a monster? We don't like him, but he was made that way by mother nature. It's a bit like, I I don't like wasps. I don't like snakes, but does that mean we destroy all the, the things that we don't like because we think they're monstrous in some way. I mean, there are a lot of, Monsters in human life as well, you know in in our lives that we see and This particular one, Betty, he is a monster, but I Want people to think can we blame him for what he does or not? He is what he was made I mean you can't in today's society If you said that about some people you, you do have to proceed with caution because otherwise all sorts would be walking the streets but, again, it's just a thing for somebody to, to think about when they're, when they're reading.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, monsters in humans are always running for politics. Um, oh,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> they're always in government, right?
3: Yeah, we don't talk about politics over here. We've been through so many prime ministers lately.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the drive-through, isn't it? It is. Oh.
3: Blink well, and well, you've got least, another one.
2: <laughs> well, at least you can get rid of them. We're stuck with ours. <laughs> Uh, seems like forever. Do you consider um, this a horror or a fantasy? Then I always sort of get this confused because I don't know what to call something. Is this kind of a how would you, which one would you put it under?
3: Uh, I think it sort of straddles both. Uh, when I wrote it, I called it a folk horror. Then someone else called it a literary horror. Then someone else said it was a dark fantasy. And I think on the whole, I would say that it's um, folk horror with dark fantasy elements in it. And it seems to be I think that seems to fit it perfectly um, because of those made up elements in there. But I think the horror in there is sufficient and the actual rituals and where it's set. It has all the elements of folk horror. So it's a combination for me. So it, it
2: sounds like you also have something that you want people to get out of this um, story besides the entertainment, the horror, the fantasy parts of it, the darkness. Uh, there's some sort of an underlying theme here or something that you want a reader to take away. Is this true?
3: Uh, in a way, And again, that was something that came out. It, it's all about balance, I, yeah, I go on a little bit, In the I don't go on, but I introduced the ideas of nature in both the books as having its cruel aspects, and having grown up in the countryside, and seeing how people would treat it when they came out to the pub at the weekends, we would get lots of visitors from nearby cities, even though we were miles from anywhere, we were quite well known in the Midlands, and you, they would come out, and... They don't treat the countryside in the in the right way. They don't treat it with respect. And there's a lot of that still. And we've got a right to Rome. I don't know what it's like in the US, but there's lots of public footpaths and bridleways that have been around for hundreds of years here. And it goes across private land, but those paths are for us to walk. But you get people trampling over them and they leave the paths and they have their picnics and they leave their rubbish and they let their dogs off the leads, which attack the animals. But they don't seem to think anything of it. They forget that it's a working environment and that it can't all be nice and pretty like some sort of theme park. It's, it's a place where nature is cruel, where foxes will rip lambs or chickens apart. I remember there was a time when my dad came, came home and he said that the neighbour, who's our neighbour was half a mile down the road, their chick, the chickens in their shed, they'd all been killed by, by a fox. And there's there's all those sorts of aspects that will have nature's crawl. It's, it's not pretty. And whilst there are things in the countryside that needed to be changed, um, you know, how farmers treat their animals, which we've got very good standards over here now. So I, I think there might still be some way to go. But there has to be a balance. There's a balance in all things. You can't wipe out the cruelty of nature. And to think you can is is wrong but you've also got to try and put things right where they are wrong you know like with the the hunting where you would go after a fox with a pack of hounds and it would be ripped to pieces that was wrong but as i say there has to be a balance and i i would rather that people talked their differences through rather than say oh this is right and you're wrong um it just it seems to be these days you might have something like the countryside alliance talking about one thing and then you've got those from the towns and cities saying, oh, this has to be done. But there's a militantism that seems to come in these days. And I don't like that. I wish people would talk the their issues through on whatever aspect it is, because I think if people are rigid in their, their views, then that breeds resentment and anger on the part of the others to oppose those views. And then you'll never get people to talk to each other. Um, but it, so it's it's very much about balance, about thinking things through. Um, you probably won't see that in the book, but that's that's my idea that there is this balance in the world. You can't wipe everything out completely. I would love cruelty to be gone. I I would love us to have a utopian society where we're all treated equally, but it never happens, and we strive for it. And I think we should, but we need to be realistic about how we go about it and how we do that. So when you read my books, yeah, there's this idea of balance. It's done in a different way, but that's something that concerns me very much these days.
2: And so uh, you put some comedy or humour in this. Do you, do you have to be careful and where and how much you do?
3: Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's only a little bit. It might be a quip here or there. I mean, in Reborn, I've got um, John Keats appearing because they do go to Winchester Uh, We lived down in Southampton until about a year and a half ago. And we'd go up to Winchester occasionally. And I didn't realise, but Keats went round Winchester. He did half the, there's a a walk you can do around the city and he did half of it. So I've introduced him as being one who sort of got along with the three, Tommy, Betty and Fiddler, back in the day. It shows how old they are. They are ancient creatures. And it sort of plays around with the words, I think it was, Ode to Autumn or something and I just used the line in there about oozings and it's just the idea of a Keats line Mm -hmm. coming into uh, an episode where they might have actually been eating or feeding off humans and drinking their blood. It just made me chuckle so Mm -hmm. I put put that in. So anything little, subtle little things, nothing slapstick in it but just the odd comments that could raise a smile.
1: Well, do, do you think when um, you do put humor into your book, do, do you think there needs to be kind of like with the up comedians, there needs to be like a, a sense of comedic timing? Is there a sense of timing or flow that needs to happen to, to make prose uh, uh, comical?
3: I, I think so. I, I, as I say, I don't do it heavy handed and I only do it sort of a couple of times throughout a, a longer novel, but it's just to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, it, If it did, if it didn't, it just comes out naturally. If that didn't, if it wasn't natural, I could tell and it would be too forced. So I wouldn't include it. But it just seemed to be that there was at this point, it just it was just felt like a perfectly natural thing to do and have a little bit of humour in there. And to give a little bit of relief to those who are reading, because sometimes you can read a horror book. And it can be relentless. So I like to sort of change the mood up a little bit occasionally in what I write.
2: So, uh, how
3: do you experience
2: your characters? And I ask this of a lot of writers that do fiction. Are you, are you seeing them in your head? Do you see it like a movie? Do you hear voices? Like, where? How do you um, interact with your characters?
3: I watch them. I, 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 when the story starts, it's usually from a character and they'll just appear in my head, and it's, it's all very visual, and then it's, right, what are you going to do? And then it is a movie in my head. Like, when I read, it's a movie in my head, the words vanish. And when I write, I'm there visualizing, and they might be walking down a road, and then it's I'm just behind their eyes, watching, seeing, hearing, and it, it is very much that way.
1: Do your characters ever take over? Like, you have a, an idea of where the story is going, and then the character says, oh, no. <laughs> i'm going uh, in a different direction i never
3: know where my stories <laughs> no i never know where my stories are going because i do not plot or outline i am a complete pantser i'll get this sort of vague idea of something or somebody and they'll be they'll do doing something i thought oh, that's a good idea and then they're off and as soon as they're walking and looking around and interacting with people they're bringing the story to me I can't outline. I I think I tried it once at the start of my writing and I'd watched or read all these other authors' ideas of how they did it. They would have their little character cards and everything. And I just found it too restrictive because my characters would keep going off and doing their own thing. So I do not outline. I keep meaning to write little character cards occasionally to remind me what they look like because I might forget what their um, eye colour is or something, you know, or what their second name might be or get them muddled up. But then I'll just do a search on the document. But it is complete dancing all the way through. I would say that it's usually about two, the story gets written to about two thirds and at the two thirds point, it will show me where the ending is going to be. And then I know how to proceed to that point. The start is often, I'll write, a paragraph maybe two or three times before I get it right. And then that paragraph will lead me into the rest of the book. That's about 30,000 words. I'm usually thinking, oh, this is a load of rubbish. I'll put it down. But then I carry carry on and keep going. I'm working on one at the moment and I'm about 54,000 words into it. And I am aiming for 100,000 if I can, because I want it to be a big doorstop of a book. Everybody says, oh, it's novellas are the thing these days, and I have written a couple of novellas. I've read a number of novellas, but for me, I love to read a really thick book and just lose myself in them. Uh, The Stand by Stephen King, I've got Chuck Wendig's Wanderers, and I've just pre-ordered his latest. Uh, Animals, Jerusalem. Uh, There's a whole load. If if I want to lose myself, I, I just get a really thick book and just hide away for a few days and just disappear into that world because a good story just takes you away from where you are and you are somewhere else completely. And I hope people find that with my writing as well.
2: So I would imagine that um, you're not an outliner and you're kind of going by the seat of your pants, as they say, then then um, emotion and mood and surroundings will affect on how you write. So like when you're sitting at home, if there's a, you know something on your mind or something stressful happening or you got a water leak in the house or something, but when something something's going on, does it sort of interfere with your writing?
3: Not really. I've learned to sort of dissociate myself from things around me. I will say if I'm having an extremely tough time in my life, whether it's health or family, the, the real stress is... Um, at the extreme end, then that's the time I can't write and I can't read a book. I know I'm in a bad way if I can't read a book. Um, But much of my writing, especially in the earlier years, my kids are all young adults now. They've all just finished uni. And I used to sit on the corner of a sofa in our front room with my notebook, and I'd be writing there with things going on around me, with the kids asking questions or playing or what have you. So I learned to write in, you know, in in quite a, a a noisy environment. I mean, now I've actually got a desk in the corner of the bedroom with the shelves and things. And it's a proper workspace and I can work here. But I find that sometimes I just need to pick up a notebook, go back downstairs to the living room where people are. and just sit in the corner and then I can start to write. So occasionally I do need things to go on around me. But I have used my writing to work through a few things. I mean, in in the five turns of the wheel, there's a part in there that involves a miscarriage. And I'm being quite open about that now. It's over 20 years ago. I had it, but I brought it into the story and the wording. If people read the words of the doctors and everything that happened then, I remember my editor, he said, you can't write that. Nobody would say something like that. And I said, well, they did. They said it to me. And I didn't realise how angry I was about the way I was treated then, because it wasn't a good experience. It's quite a violent experience, and I put it in the book, and it helped me sort of work through it a little bit. Although it's it still makes me angry to think about it now. But I wanted to show people that you know you you can get through these things, and you can use your writing uh, to to help you work through something that you hadn't really addressed for some time. Because I know that uh, a lot of women with families you, you you put your family first, and anything that really affects you, you tend to internalize, but you don't always deal with it at the time and it can take a few years down the line in my case, quite a long time before I thought about it and thought, yeah, that wasn't good at all
2: yeah it's 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 interesting how things affect us and how it comes out in in our work or art, you know, so to speak, and, and writing. Um, how was the pandemic? You must have been writing this book through the bulk of what was going on and with all the craziness, you know, and, well, you know, because the way people act and then react it and and all the tension and stuff going on outside of your door and the lockdown and all this stuff.
3: Reborn was written just before, I think it's just before the pandemic or partly through I was finishing it up. It was going to another publisher and that's the publisher that it was all the work was going to folded and then it's Bridget's Gate. I've just picked it up. At the time of the pandemic, I was actually working. I was, as I say, I was a librarian. I was also a teaching assistant and I specialised in literacy for those who had difficulties. And I I was teaching a lot of teenagers to read basically. And during the pandemic, I think I was off work when we were told, right, stay home. I was off work for A couple of weeks when the school closed and then I was back in. Um, I was setting up a new library and then I was supervising kids in classrooms. So I worked throughout lockdown pretty much and part of the decision for me to stop my job at the time and to sort of focus on my writing full time with the support of my husband who's working to support us Um, And the move helped us get rid of a mortgage so I could do that. It was just I couldn't do that job anymore because of the the stresses that it involved. So Reborn had been pretty much finished at that point. But I was writing. I was actually doing a collaboration, um, a poetry book. It's a novella in poet form called Lilith Rising. And it's about Lilith coming back and getting a revenge on man. And I, I was actually working on it with Shane Douglas Dean. And he's over in America. So during that time, we were batting poems backwards and forwards to create this book. And that's recently come out. So it didn't stop me writing. It allowed me time to actually read and to carry on working. But it was the stress of Covid just slowed it down a little bit. Um, I think sometimes the hardest part was going into work and seeing everyone else have a lie in or in the house. (laughs) Be asleep, and I'd go off to work and come mm-hmm. back and it'd be very difficult at work as well. And you put in positions which you shouldn't have been in at times either. So it's it's quite difficult. But now I've got the time to write and I'm finding that harder that you've got the time to write. <laughs> Whereas before I'd squash it in, when you know you've only got a little bit of time to write, that, that time to write, that pushes you to actually get on and do it. But now I'll sit there and I'll think, yeah, I'll do this, but then I'll go off and get a cup of tea and I'll do something else as well and then I'll come back to it. And it is harder to discipline yourself when you don't have those other constraints on your time. Right. So I have to be strict.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's something about a pressure that you get used to and then without it, it's, yeah, I know. Yeah. Do you ever take these these bad people that you've met in your life and, and put them as characters in your book, you know, kill them, make them suffer?
3: I haven't. that. I haven't not necessarily. It may be that if I go back and read some of my stories, I will see some of them in there. Uh, in some of the short stories I put in certain types of people that I get uh, fed up with seeing, being, you know, getting away with all sorts. I think there's a short story I wrote years ago and there were lone sharks and people who took advantage of others and People like that who always seem to get away with things. Well, they didn't in my story. Um, in five turns, I have got some of my dad's customers, our, our regulars in there, but they are disguised and they're they're harmless anyway, so they haven't really caused any trouble. So I will say that Betty, the one that I sort of explore his character, his physical appearance is a bit like one of our old regulars. It was him who I, I thought of when I sort of describe him. but. This man's behaviour and it's nothing like in the book. He was a gentle soul. He was a really nice bloke, but you know, nothing like in the book.
1: Well, I was wondering, in, in your poetry, do you use a specific structure, or is it um, a free form kind of kind of the same way you you write your your prose fiction?
3: It's it's very much free form. Um, although I have got into haiku as well. I think what one thing I really love. Is found poetry. And I did a collection, I keep saying last year, but must be this year. I'm losing all track of time at the moment called Foundlings. And I wrote it with Cindy O'Quinn. Um, and we took the poetry of Linda D. Addison and Alessandro Manzetti. Uh, we took their poetry and we created new poems from that, and then we created from poems Found poems from those poems as well. And we got Linda and Alessandro to write the foreword to the book. And they, they really like the poems. It is completely original poetry. So it's not um, copied or, or anything. You know, there's no plagiarism involved. We just created a new element and I wrote some haiku in that. But those were very much free form apart from the haiku. Then I wrote, I did a collection. This was a, a labour of love called Metallurgy. And that is based on one poem is the tracks from two songs. And it was he- all my metal favorites. <laughs> You'd find Behemoth and Slipknot mm-hmm. and The Cult and all sorts of tracks, Nine Inch Nails. And I'd be reading the, the lyrics and then trying to create poems from that. And that was quite hard because then you realize that um, maybe heavy metal songs and things aren't the things to write poetry from if you think it's a long poem, it's repeated and repeated and you can't find anything original to say. But I did it and I created a Spotify list for that as well. And then Lilith Rising was actually very much a freeform um, style of writing. And I uh, say, mine and Shane's, it just seemed to gel together. We're working on something else at the moment, which again is going to be a sort of novella and poetry form. And this is for a publisher. But uh, there is partly free form, but then it's also sonnets. And when it comes to structure, I'm there counting my syllables on my fingers and trying to get it right. And these that were like in Eugene Nagin, uh, I'd never read that before. So I looked it up and I've got the, the form there. So I am, it's a mixture of free and sonnet. And I also did a found sonnet in um, Shakespeare Unleashed, which is coming out with Crystal Lake Publishing, I think next year at some point. So I used Shakespeare's King John and created a found poem from that. So I do like found poetry because it's very much a puzzle. So if people like puzzles and they're writers, I would recommend it as a great exercise because you you've just you got the words there. You've just got to create that image. But generally, I do like the free verse size because when I look at structure and syllable countings and all all the words and the forms, it just goes over my head. It's, it's something that comes naturally to me to write freely rather than to be held in that way. I don't know what if it's because I'm a pantser as well when it comes to the novels and short stories
1: and fiction, that sort of thing, but it's just the way I am. It's interesting. Well, I, I'm wondering, too, um, how did you get into metal? I know uh, I got into metal like in the 80s. A friend uh, introduced me, I think, to, I think it was a Metallica at the time. But um, I'm just wondering how you um, got into uh, uh, metal itself as a musical genre and then how it has um, maybe influenced uh, some of your longer works.
3: Uh, well, well, back in the day, um, in the sort of late 70s when I was in my early teens, I was into punk as in, the british sort of version and i didn't listen to too much metal i did listen to motorhead and and a few others and then i would say my early 20s I, I left home and met some friends and they were into metal and they shared tapes with me and they introduced me to all sorts of bands and i just started listening from there so that's where i picked up metallica um the cult uh, bands like that and i'd start to go to see them but it's It's only been in recent years I've actually been able to go to concerts and to festivals. Because when you got a young, where where I first lived, we were in the middle of nowhere. So you couldn't get to the festivals and I couldn't afford it. Couldn't go to gigs either because they were too far away. And then when I had family, again, couldn't afford it. But I I remember that by that time I was listening to like Ramstein and Behemoth and all sorts, Kerrang! on them. tell you i used to watch that a lot and there was a panel called stars and they'd have all these metal bands on there and i really like those and i remember there was i just about had enough money at one point i can't remember how old the kids were they'd grown up a bit and i said to my husband "Oh, i really want to go to see ramstein and so we went to see them and it cost a little bit but after that i've seen the cult about three times i see metallica at reading uh nine inch nails my eldest I've seen them a couple of times. My eldest bought me a ticket to their concert when I was 50. So that's my 50th present. Uh, I go to Bloodstock when we can, if there's a headliner there. I I just really like um, the energy of the music and the sort of rough edges to it. When I'm writing, sometimes people say, oh, you can't have music on when you're writing because the lyrics distract you. But I listen to a lot of uh, might be Finnish or any sort of Scandinavian band and the German bands as well, when they're singing in their own languages, you don't really understand what they're going to say. So it it doesn't it doesn't affect your writing in any way, but it does help me set the mood um, of a piece. I have got um, the Woodcutters coming out next year with Gate Press. It's not in the Five Turns world, but is a folk horror, and there's a bit where that this person's in the wood, and it's a really sort of grim atmosphere, and to get into that sort of mindset, that mood with that little bit of anger. I had Behemoth's version of The Cure on a loop as I wrote the scene. So it kept that mood going and music will take me to those places that I need to be to write, to write some of those scenes. But yeah, we're, we're all metal fans in this in this family. We do have quite, but my eldest especially is one who will come to gigs with me. Although I was a little bit miffed a few years ago, and she took my youngest daughter to, to see Corn and Slipknot with her. She didn't take me, but I did get to see Slipknot just before COVID. They were one of the last, last bands I saw before lockdown. It was Slipknot headlining with Behemoth supporting, so I was happy.
2: <laughs> well, it, so if if someone hadn't. Uh heard of you before they haven't read anything of yours um which one book would you suggest that they they pick up
3: much as i love reborn and i do prefer it in a way to the five turns of the wheel i would say the five turns of the wheel because that is very much me it's my it shows how i bring atmosphere and mood and all the senses into my writing it's also got a bit of me and my life in there that's why i say five turns more than reborn because Five Turns has my childhood in that in a certain area of England and the rural aspects of it. So and I just had such fun with it and then go on to Reborn after that. So I, w- I would say those if you like folk horror, if you want to experience something, uh, something that could affect humans at some point and you want a quick read, I would say pause. There's a good little action novella if they like that. And that is a condition, it's based on the condition of locked-in syndrome. I don't know whether you've sort of come across that, where the body's shut down, but the person is still alert, they're still conscious. And this happens to people all over the world. They just suddenly freeze and they're aware of everything around them, but they can't react. So how would you feel if you are crossing a train track and you suddenly froze and your body won't respond and that train's coming towards you or you were on a walk on the beach and your body froze? and the tides coming in so there's elements of that but five turns is is the one that um i would recommend
2: mm. okay so now um do you do um social media do you like to interact with readers do you have a website how do people get a hold of stephanie ellis
3: uh right i do have a website it's oh. stephanie ellis dot uh stephanie ellis there's no space in there i'm on twitter at TV and what's well, underscore Stevie and you'll also find me on Facebook and Instagram um, and I'm also over at Horatree.com uh, where I do the weekly indie bookshelf releases and help out behind the scenes. I used to be a, an editor of the zine there but uh, I will give a shout out to HorrorTree because there's so many resources for horror writers there and if any other writers are listening to this and they've got a book coming out soon they can just send me a link and I'll put it on the bookshelf and help promote them as well so I strongly believe that yeah, we 're on social media to promote ourselves, but we 're also there to help others along the way because otherwise i 'd have no books to read <laughs> what do you what do you, what what interests you what
2: are you reading these days um is there is there something and especially is there stuff that are uh, maybe outside the genre, like outside of fantasy and horror, do you read other things that...
3: I, in- I do, I do. It seemed to be that for a while, if you were a horror writer, you couldn't admit to reading other stuff, but I do read quite widely. Uh, a weakness I have is um, for Richard Osman. He's a presenter over here, and he's, he, pre- he presented a, a quiz show that we used to watch Um Pointless and also the House of Games that we still watch. And he's written these sort of cosy mysteries about uh, geriatrics living in an old people's complex and they go out and solve murders and things. <laughs> I've read those. Uh, it's the Thursday Murder Club and the books that follow on from that, they're really good. Uh, I'm also reading a lot about the English Civil War at the moment, a lot of non-fiction, because the book that I'm writing, The the Women of the Witch Eye, is set in 1649, and so I'm reading about the war in Lancashire where I had ancestors. And I'm also bringing in religion of that time because my ancestors were the first Quakers in that area. So I've got family names sprinkled in the book. I'm reading a lot of that. And there's also bits of poetry that I've been picking up. So, yeah, it's quite quite wide in terms of my reading. There's, there's a lot of, say, nonfiction at the moment. So, so I get my facts right for the, the latest book because it does take a lot
2: of research. <laughs> I was going to say, that must take a lot of research then, and you're spending it um, doing that and going through a lot of um, history and stuff like that. Because I, I think it's really important that um, that people do get that right. Because for myself, um, the worst thing in the world is reading a book or watching a show, and it's dealing with something using history, and they don't have it right. Or another thing that really bothers me is when they have the wrong – the wrong language like they're speaking 2020 rather than 1800 for instance they say different things that are wrong and it drives me nuts it, you know it takes me out of it so uh, how long does it take you to do one of these
3: i want to say this is the first i did write a very short i did write a short story um, set at the same time some years ago and it took a little bit of research but i'm going into this in quite de- a lot of depth because i've been writing it for about three or four months now uh, with some breaks because we just moved house so there's been a lot of upheaval but I've sort of intermingled the writing and the, and the reading but I mean I had an obsession over trying to find out what people ate at the time because I was going through the day with some of these people did they have breakfast at a normal time what we regard as normal no it was usually later and then I was looking up online and people said oh they'd have toast I thought I only didn't have toast back then, so I've got a book now which has a chapter on food and says basically it's bread and cheese and a bit of cottage, I think. But it's, it's little things like that that I want to get right because I know that some people, well, I've, I've read a lot of history. I do like, I would actually recommend C.J. Sansom's books. He's written Matthew Shardlake series. They're like detective series set during the time of Henry VIII. Um, they are very, very good. And his attention to de- detail, it's like Bernard Cornwall as well, who wrote Sharp, and he did a, a Viking series that I really love. But he, the, the, the detail in there, it doesn't pull you out, whereas if you get something wrong, like you say, it takes you out of the story. So I'm trying to put it in into the story, but not in a heavy-handed way, just enough to show that I know what I'm talking about. Because the other side is also trying to get the dialogue right, like you say. You've got to keep people reading, so you can't be completely in the language of the time. But nor can you use modern phrases, um, you know, for in the in those books either. You just have to get the balance right. But I do like it because I've always had a weakness for history. It was my favourite subject sc- at school, and I wanted to take it further. But my dad said, "What well, are you going to be a history teacher?" But years later, I did a, a degree at home. I did it with the Open University, and history was the subject that I studied then. So I was able to just pick up books and, and read and, and fill in a lot of the gaps that uh, had been there before. And it's where I found my interest in the sort of civil wars of this country, a time of upheaval, a bit like now, all sorts of ideas coming through and challenges to authority. So it's it's a good time to write about. So, But it will be a bit dark. I've got witchcraft and superstition and things in there as well. But I'm having a lot of fun with it.
2: You try to stick to the common um ideas of what witchcraft is like when you do something
3: like that i've i've got some books uh, i've looked i've looked it up but I, I want it to be there as in how they viewed it at the time i mean people would just make wild accusations a lot of the time and say oh they said this or did that and I, i've got a few of the supposed spells and things but it it's not all spells and charms it's just how things appear to go wrong and they would blame the old woman who lived down the road. So it's got that sort of unfairness to it. Um, I've used a bit of the pen. I don't know if you've heard of the Pendle Witch trials that happened in this country in the early part of the 17th century. Um, These women were hanged in Lancaster. And one of their accusers was the daughter of one of the women um, who was hanged. And she was about nine at the time. And then years later, in the 1930s, she was accused again of being a witch by a lad who'd who'd accused her just to deflect attention from himself because he'd failed to do some job or other for his dad. And so I've got that particular woman who's sort of survived, well, she accused once, she was accused herself, and now she's older and she's in this particular story. So I'm, I'm digging up the old records and seeing... Um, transcripts of what happened in the original trials and trying to make it a bit more realistic. It's not going to be women over a cold, you're muttering spells or anything like that.
2: This has certainly been a great conversation, <laughs> and we're glad you came on the show. And now uh, the latest book is called Reborn, and our guest is the author of that, Stephanie Ellis. So thank you for being here.
3: Thank you for having me. It's been great. <laughs> Thanks,
0: Stephanie.